With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Have you ever heard of a guy named Turk Wendell? This lovable, bizarre relief pitcher had a really unique collection of on-field antics combined with solid relief pitching. His time in Major League Baseball is funny, uplifting, and really the perfect story for baseball fans. Let's talk about it today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. Thank you for for tuning in to today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about a guy named Turk Wendell. This is a fascinating story. Sometimes it's fun to look on the bizarre side of baseball, and Turk certainly had some very interesting antics, both on and off the field, that are certainly worth telling his story. And so we're going to jump into that for today. Before we get started, I've been featuring feedback from you in previous episodes just to show you what the community is saying and to give you a chance to be able to respond and provide feedback uh, on the show. And I I do appreciate when you do that. So we have two individuals who uh, either emailed in or left comments. And uh, the first one comes from a guy named Michael. Michael, thanks for writing in. He had a comment uh, that said, quote, in past episodes, you've mentioned mentioned Gene Mack, but you pronounce it like Mouch. Mouch. It's Mack, like the airspeed, end quote. Thank you, Michael. Good point. Uh, you know, certainly not a player that I was able to view during my lifetime, but uh, if that's how you say it, that's how I'm going to keep saying it from here on out. And then we had another comment from Leland. Leland was writing in about our previous episode about the Houston Colt 45s. We did an autopsy on their uh, franchise time, of course, you know, before they upgraded to the Houston Astros. But he had to say about Colt Stadium, which was the temporary home for the Colt 45s while their new permanent stadium was being built, which would eventually be the Astrodome. Uh, he had to say, quote, Colt Stadium uh, not only had sweltering heat, but it's basically a swamp and the mosquitoes are as big as their state, end quote. Uh, Leland, I'd love to hear more about that if you get a chance, if that was something you were able to attend in person, story from your family. I can't imagine being in that type of situation when we talked about it in the episode. It didn't seem like the greatest place to go catch a game, but thank you for that perspective. It's much appreciated. Uh, To everybody else, please remember you can email me at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. You can message me on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at rounderspodcast. And you can leave me a voice message if you want, which I'll feature on the show. There's a link for that in the notes. We have our August mailbag coming up soon. So if you have questions you'd like me to answer specifically on air, please make sure to send those in. And as always, I appreciate the feedback. It's good to hear from you, the community. Without further ado, let's get into our topic for today, the quirky and wacky antics of Turk Wendell. We're 
we're going to break our story down into three parts. We're going to start off by talking about Turk Wendell's childhood and early life. Then we're going to transition to talking about his playing career because I do want to put that respect first and that he was a very solid big league pitcher. So we're going to go through his playing career and talk about his accomplishments. And then we'll finish by talking about some of those antics and superstitions that made him such a fan favorite and certainly someone that stood out to the media. So we're going to break this down into three parts to really give the full picture of who Turk Wendell was. So let's begin at the birthplace of Turk Wendell. He was actually born Stephen John Wendell in May of 1967, uh, he was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is in the western part of the state. Great camping out that way, if you're ever in that part of the country. Turk was born, he was the third of six children. He had one brother and he had four sisters. His dad was an auto body technician and his mother was a homemaker with that many kids. I can't imagine that you sort of had to be. So Turk grew up in a large family setting. It didn't take him long to get the nickname Turk. He certainly wasn't called that from birth. So Stephen became Turk, became Turk around the age of three. He earned this nickname supposedly by during one winter he decided that he was going to jump out the window of his house face first into a mound of snow that his grandfather had piled up under the window, I guess, to be able to pad his fall. And he would just keep repeatedly going back into the house, jumping out the window face first and just enjoying that process. So his grandfather was quoted as saying, uh, that was only something a Turk would do, end quote. Now, you may be wondering, what would his grandfather have meant by a Turk? Is is that a uh, cultural reference? What is that? So basically, that came out in a 1991 interview that Turk Wendell did when he was asked this question. He said, quote, my grandfather nicknamed me after one of his buddies because I was always doing stupid, rebellious things. And this became something that was synonymous with Turk as a child, not just his grandfather giving him that nickname, but his father was also quoted as saying, he wrecked everything in no time at all. He always thought he was indestructible. He has always been a daredevil, end quote. So we see from an early age that Turk certainly was somebody who marched to the beat of his own drum, and that carried on throughout his career. But, you know, like a lot of people who loved the sport, you know, outside of the antics, he really loved baseball from a very young age. And he had said this also in a previous interview. He said, quote, I've wanted to be a ball player ever since I could remember. I used to tell my friends that I would play in the big leagues and that they used to tell me to just grow up, end quote. So from childhood, from Little League onward, Turk was involved in baseball. He played through high school. He went to Wakona Regional High School in Dalton, Massachusetts, and he played a lot of third base and shortstop when in his younger years. But in high school, that's where he started to get more into pitching, and that's when he started to really stand out. And by his senior year in 1985, he had made uh, the roster for the all-Western Massachusetts baseball team. And during his senior year, he threw three no-hitters. So he certainly found his niche on the mound. After graduating from high school, he made the decision to go play at Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac 
College in Hamden. Boy, I hope I'm saying that right. I know I'm going to get some emails. I've heard of the college. I hope I'm saying it correctly. Uh, Quinnipiac is in Hamden, Connecticut, and he made that decision because the coach had specifically seen him play in high school. The coach of the team was uh, a guy named Dan Gooley, and he specifically went to Turk's hometown, met his family, recruited him, and said, I want you on my roster. I want you on my team. And it worked out very well for Coach Gooley and Quinnipiac by bringing Turk on as one of their top players. He was certainly someone who did very well. Just to give you an example, uh, in 1988, when he was a junior, uh, he went 5-3. and three. He had 66 strikeouts and 62 innings. During his time, he was also named as a second-team All-New England uh, choice, and he helped the college win the Northeast 10 tournament and a berth to the NCAA Division II tourney. And during that tournament, he pitched 15 innings against Mansfield University in one game. So he was a staple for that rotation, did very well in college, and that led to an opportunity for him to be able to play in the big leagues. So now that we've given you an overview of Turk's childhood, he was someone who really loved and embraced baseball, was good at it, certainly had a way of doing things on his own. We're going to talk about his antics a little bit later. Uh, Let's go ahead and transition into his big league career. How did he do once he graduated from college? Well, he was selected by the Atlanta Braves in the fifth round in 1988, and he started off very strong. He pitched 101 innings and 14 starts for the Braves' rookie-level squad. And in his second season, he was promoted to... Uh, single A, and he played, he split time between two different clubs. He played for Durham of the Carolina League and Burlington of the Midwest League. And he even was called up for one double A game with Greenville of Southern League. And through each of those three squads, he finished 11 and 11, but he posted a 2.2 ERA and had five shutouts. And he also struck out 183 and 186 innings pitched. So his numbers were there. He's, he's certainly getting promoted as time goes on through the uh, farm system. And so we get to his third year in 1990. It's his third year in the minors. He's not having an incredible amount of luck being able to improve in his win-loss record. And he had to make some adjustments during that time. So for most of his third season, that 1990 season, he stayed with Greenville in in double-A ball, and uh, he started to pitch more and more out of the bullpen. So he was uh, against it a little bit at first, I think, but uh, eventually decided to be able to embrace that as something that could help him with his career. And one reason that they decided to move him to the bullpen was because he was struggling with elbow tendonitis. And so his ability to come out of the bullpen and pitch for shorter sessions was instrumental in helping him be able to really improve his performance on the mound. Uh, He even said himself, uh, quote, being competitive, I was very stupid. I was going out there when I was hurting and it was taking its toll on me, end quote. So he was able to rest his arm a bit more by making that move to the bullpen. He was able to get his arm stronger by doing that. And he uh, adopted a real strong off-season training regimen to be able to build that up in his new 
his new role, I guess you could say. And his work ethic had always been strong. Uh, from the minor leagues on upwards, he was known for someone who was always in the gym. He was known to run 10 miles to the park on days when he was not pitching, but had to be there at the game. So he certainly was someone who took his health seriously. But he made the transition to the bullpen in his third year in the minors. And that paid off for him uh, in a big way. So going into his fourth season in 1991, he rebounded. He went 11-3 and and posted a 2.56 ERA for for AA Greenville. And that was a big uh, shift for him because that got him onto the AA All-Star team for uh, his league. And so that led to a promotion to AAA Richmond. And there they decided to shift him back to the starting rotation, and he made three starts that year. Uh, but he had posted uh, strong enough numbers where scouts were taking notice, and in that fourth year, he was traded from the Braves system to the Chicago Cubs farm system. So after his fourth year, or I say midway through, uh, you know, he was traded. And starting in his fourth year, he started in the Cubs farm system, posted similar numbers. And in his fifth year, he was called up to play for the clubs, uh, the Cubs, excuse me. And he did very well. He posted uh, a one and two record with a 4.37 ERA in his first season in the bigs. And then Following the 1993 season, that's when we got into 1994, and I think he was probably hoping to really start off the season strong, but remember 1994, that whole season was cut short by the players' strike. So he only uh, made two starts and appeared in four relief appearances. So uh, really wasn't the year that he was hoping for to be able to make his himself known to the rest of the league. So that takes us to 1996 when he really comes out as someone who the fans get excited about, someone who becomes a staple in that bullpen for the Cubs. So 1996 was his best year. He appeared in 70 games. He recorded 18 saves and he had a 2.84 ERA. Did very well. And that was enough for him to be packaged up in a trade the next season in 1997 where he was sent to the New York Mets. And he spent four seasons there and, again, did very well. He made 285 appearances in a Mets uniform. He went 22-14. and He had a 3.34 ERA. And he also led the team in games pitched in 1999 and 2000. Uh, He was someone who was reliable in the playoffs. He appeared with the team twice in 1999 and 2000, and he was an instrumental reliever during the Subway Series in 2000 where the Mets played the Yankees. So he had a good stint with the Mets. He was traded to the Phillies in 2001, started to decline there, started to have elbow tendonitis problems again, uh, didn't last the full season with Philly. He signed a minor league deal with Colorado for the 2002 season, but he wasn't able to make the big league squad and he ended up retiring after that. So it really came down to the elbow issues that had plagued him early on in his career. Making the move to the bullpen certainly helped uh, prolong his career, but it caught up to him in the early 2000s. But look, overall, Turk had a very good career. He pitched 645 major league innings. He went 36 and 33, and he posted a 3.93 ERA and had 515 strikeouts. So Turk made an impact on the mound. He was a reliable reliever for several teams. And I think that's important to get out of the way because this wasn't just a guy who lasted half a season in the minors or who wasn't someone who was valuable to the teams he played for. His antics were something that 
clubs decided to take with the package because they knew that they were getting a good pitcher along with maybe some of the other things that came with Turk Wendell. And those are the things we're going to talk about next. Turk had his own way of doing things, like we said, since he was a kid. So we're going to talk about what were some of those things. He was a very superstitious person, and he certainly liked to do things that would be considered out of the normal. So if you'd like to hear about those things, just stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch, and we'll be right back. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We are examining the career of one Turk Wendell and really diving into the player behind the antics. We mentioned that uh, Turk Wendell during his time in the MLB was certainly known for being someone who had a lot of uh, wacky habits that were shown during his time on the mound, but certainly did not inhibit his ability to help the teams that he played for. He was a very capable MLB pitcher. But let's talk about some of those antics that we had mentioned earlier in the show as being something that really made Turk Wendell a popular name, not only for the teams he played for, but someone who has certainly uh, got a lot of attention from the media as well. So Turk really garnered attention throughout his career for the uniqueness of the parts of his routine that he established. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the question right off the bat, why did he act this way on the field? Well, we can take it from Turk himself. He said at one point during an interview, quote, if I find something that works for me, I stay with it, no matter how crazy it may seem, end quote. And this is certainly true if we follow his career. Let's go back to his childhood. This was a guy who established routines because he wanted to be able to get the most out of his performance. And it was his belief early on that little things mattered. So just to give you an example, in Little League, Turk once wore the same pair of Dallas Cowboys shorts under his uniform until, in his own words, about 2,000 or so washings wore them out, end quote. So he was known for wearing the same thing under his, 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 uh, his, uh, his jersey pants. I couldn't think of the word there. Uh, during his childhood. He also, when he first signed on in the big league with the Atlanta Braves, he wanted a stipulation in his contract that said that he always would be able to wear the number 13. And he did that for most of his career. Um, He was able to wear it every year when he was with the Braves, when he was traded to the Mets in 1997. There was a time where he was not able to wear that jersey number because somebody else had it, but he had a backup. He also had a necklace that he wore at all times that had a baseball glove on it, a cross, and then the number 13 inside of each. So number 13 was very important to him. It was something he always wanted to wear. So he had these, again, these uh, certain things, these certain parts of his game that he felt relied on these routines that he would put together. So in addition to the necklace and seeing his childhood obsession with wearing shorts underneath his jersey pants, there were other antics that he became to be known for as a big league pitcher. So let's go through those. 
Turk was known for whenever he stepped into the game, he would take a really high leap over the foul line whenever he approached or left the mound. Why did he do that? He said in an interview, quote, in high school, I stepped on the foul line when I was taking the field. I gave up some runs that inning, end quote. So we see the adjustment. Wendell makes a, a change to his routine, thinking that this on some level may help him not give up runs in the future. So he said again uh, in an interview in 2009, when that happened after that, quote, from that point on, I never wanted to step on the foul line again, end quote. So again, you're seeing him, uh, you know, very highly jump over these these foul lines. It's interesting to see him do this uh, to be able to avoid stepping on the line because of something that happened. So we see, again, an adjustment in his routine. Another thing that Turk became known for is he would never be standing as the same time as his catcher. So whenever the catcher stood up to throw the ball back, he would squat on the mound. And then when the catcher squatted, he would stand back up. But he would never allow himself to stand up at the same time as his catcher. It was something that always had to be. There always had to be that balance between the two. That must have been interesting to see live. The other thing that Turk did that was of interest is whenever he took the mound for games, he would always start by going onto the mound and drawing three crosses in the dirt with his with his hand, with his finger, I should say. Now, why did he do this? He was known for being a very religious individual, but he said in an interview, quote, the crosses are for the three prayers that I pray. I pray out there to do the best of my ability. I pray to be injury-free, and I pray to win, end quote. And after drawing those crosses into the dirt, he would always lick the dirt off of his finger. So that's the third thing that Turk was known for doing whenever he took the mound. Another thing that he would do is whenever he started a new inning, when he was in the game, when at the beginning of each inning, he would always wave to the center fielder. And he would keep waving until the center fielder waved back. And this was something that followed him throughout his career, even when he was in the minors. He started doing this all the way through up to the big leagues. And at one point, the center fielder that was waving back to him was future big league executive Jim Duquette. So uh, he had teammates along the way, always who would would uh, entertain this quirk of his and make sure to wave back at the beginning of each inning so we could get on with the game. Turk also had an obsession with chewing a black licorice. Uh, it was something that he just obsessively did. Each game would always have a bag of black licorice on it and would always be chewing it. But he would always brush his teeth between every inning. Seems like an interesting mix, right? Because black licorice certainly is something you see after you chew it on your teeth. But he would always be brushing in between innings. He'd have a toothbrush with them. So there are some reasons for this. Number one, as we mentioned, Wendell uh, you know, came from a religious background. He was known to be a very clean living type of individual. He didn't want to chew tobacco. So he wanted to make sure that he had something else that he could chew on during the games. Uh, he was noted in several interviews and several teammates are quoted as saying that they never saw him try tobacco or even take a sip of alcohol or any drug. He said, quote, the licorice was for dental hygiene. But he said, quote, I don't like the way the licorice makes my teeth feel. It just sits there. I don't want my teeth to get stained, end quote. So the licorice was almost an accommodation to not having to chew the tobacco, but he didn't like the residue of it. So he would brush his teeth during games in between innings to be able to offset the effect of it. 
Another thing Turk did that was really interesting was he would never wear socks ever with his cleats. Uh, he's quoted as saying in an interview, socks don't serve a purpose. They're useless, end quote. So he wouldn't even put a pair on outside of the park. This wasn't just for games. Uh, his sister's wedding, which he was a major part in, he refused to put on a pair of socks over his loafers, uh, I should say under his loafers, uh, even during an event such as that. So he was later on in his career, he switched to high top shoes and that certainly probably has something to do with the fact that he didn't wear socks, but that was another quirk that he became known for. Uh, here's, I left the two most interesting ones for last. Turk would never catch a ball from an M- umpire that threw it back to him. So if the umpire had to throw him a ball, say there was a wild pitch, say that there was a scratch and it needed a new one, the umpire had to roll the ball back to him. He would never catch it in air. And if the umpire refused to roll him the ball, he would let the ball go past him. Like he would let the ball sail over him that was thrown. And then he would go pick it up off the grass. That was another interesting quirk that he had. So even the umpire, if the ball was switched out, he wouldn't touch it. Couldn't be from the umpire. And last but not least, one that you'll certainly see the most pictures tied in with online with Turk Wendell is he would always wear for games this necklace and this necklace had claws and teeth all over it. And the story goes that every tooth or claw that was on this necklace that he wore was from the animals that he hunted and killed. So that, you know, uh, had some mixed reactions, which we're going to go into now, which uh, we see all of these you know, interesting ways that Turk made the game, I guess you could say, more entertaining, but certainly did it as part of his own process to be the best that he could be. How did his teammates feel about that? What was the reception like? Well, you know, some loved it, obviously, and it was mostly the fans that really enjoyed watching him pitch and seeing these just outlandish antics that he would perform during games. It would keep things fresh. It would keep things interesting. During his 1993 season when he was playing AAA ball in Des Moines, Wendell became so popular with the local fans and his rituals became so well known that the team actually made t-shirts that they sold at the park that on the front it would say Turk's Quirks and on the back it would list all of the routines that he did. (laughs) So that's one example of the fans really enjoying the different way that he approached the sport. Both Cubs and Met fans would cheer loudly whenever Turk came in for a relief appearance. He was certainly a fan favorite. People love seeing him take the mound. Uh, he played winter ball in Puerto Rico one year for the Santurce Cangrejeros, which is the Crabbers, if we're doing the translation. And there was a book about the Crabbers where Thomas Van Heining, the author, said that Wendell's mound antics, end quote, uh, excuse me, quote, had Santurce fans calling the team's office to find out when his next start would come, end quote. So the fans were so excited to see this guy just get out on the mound and be different than all of the other players. Wendell himself uh, is quoted as saying, they would not allow me to pitch road games. I was only allowed to pitch at home. So he was a fan favorite, uh, especially when playing overseas. And he just overall was beloved by the fans for the way that he made the game a little bit more fun. But there were some detractors. There were some players that didn't love uh, this different take on playing the game took. And that mostly came from one particular person. And that was the manager while he was with the Chicago Cubs, Jim Riggleman. Uh, He was known to not be a fan of Turk's antics. He would often 
uh, asked Turk to, quote, knock off his superstitious idiosyncrasies, end quote. So he went to Turk at one point and supposedly said, quote, I asked him not to let it be an issue that he should be recognized for what he does from 60 feet, six inches. If he needs to do those things, do them out of sight of the camera, end quote. So that was something that I think Turk took in stride. And I think it's to be remembered that Riggleman had an overall reputation as being a very conservative old timer type of coach. And certainly just didn't like this new twist on the game that Turk brought. But, you know, I think we we hear Turk's overall mantra of the game. And we see that he was really focused on, I have a process for things because I think it's going to help me in the long run. But I think he also did it because he understood that it was something that the fans enjoyed. And he really was a person who loved the sport. He said in an interview once, quote, I did these things to make the game fun. That was all. I'll just have to think of other ways to have fun in the future, end quote. So when it comes down to it, folks, Turk Wendell certainly was someone who brought fans into games, who made the game more fun, but did it from a place that also allowed him to be a productive member of each of the teams that he played for. And there are other players throughout baseball history who also had interesting superstitions or antics that made the game more interesting. You know, we had Mark Fidrich. He would talk to the baseball on the mound whenever he was out there. We had Kevin Romberg, who was a position player. He played briefly with the Cleveland Indians in the early 1980s. He would also have rituals that were very intricate and very thought processed out, just like Wendell's were. And we may do an episode on him in the future. But players doing certain things in order to make the game more interesting and to also improve their own performance is not new. But Turk Wendell certainly made it a feat that he should be remembered for. So overall, we celebrate Turk and his ability to make the game a little bit more interesting for the fans that were uh, packing the stands to be able to see him pitch night in and night out. And It was uh, certainly a fun person to research. So overall, folks, thank you for joining me for another episode. It was great to dive in and learn a little bit more about this individual. We have other episodes coming up in September. We're excited about the run. If you want to know about the upcoming episodes, please make sure you sign up for uh, following us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We are on Instagram. You can also sign up for the email if you want to get this directly into your inbox. It certainly helps us be able to communicate with you more on future plans and future ideas. And overall, if you like the show, if you like what we're doing, please feel free to leave us a tip. It always helps. We put the money right back into the show. Supports what I'm doing. It supports our research assistant cast. So every little bit helps. I want to thank you for all the support that you give to the show. And overall, as we sign off, as we always say, folks, remember there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. We'll see you next time. Rounders, A History of Baseball in America is produced by Jeffrey Lambert. Our research assistant is Cass Silber. A special thanks to our starting nine supporters, Nathan Halverson and Jack Wilson.